In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John has an extraordinary invitation from the Lord God Almighty to ascend from earth to heaven through a doorway into the heavenly realms to see things that are absolutely invisible to us and absolutely overwhelming to us, if we could see. But as John, according to the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse As he passes through the first doorway, the first thing he sees is someone seated on a throne. And that throne and the one seated on it are the central reality of the entire universe. Why? Because God created the universe. He owns it. And our God actively rules over this universe. The throne is the very thing that sinners rebelled against. They rebelled against the absolute sovereign authority of the one who is seated upon the throne. And it is in reconciliation with that throne that we find our salvation. Especially if you've read the Bible, you know that. So Isaiah had a similar vision like John on the Isle of Patmos. Isaiah will have a vision many, many years before, probably around 740 B.C., And this vision is going to shape everything Isaiah ever wrote from that time on will be affected by what he sees in this vision. So what's happening is the Lord God is giving Isaiah this vision to call him as a prophet. Now, the fact is, I think this vision and the teaching of the scripture in Isaiah 6, 1 through 13, I think that it can prepare us for the next year. We're just inside the door of another year. And and I honestly believe if we truly grasp the principle, the attribute of the holiness of God, it won't just affect you this year. It'll affect you every day. It will affect you every day of your life. And so basically what you have, a synopsis from Isaiah 6, 1 through 13, is the fact that God reveals Christ to Isaiah. He convicts him of his sin. He purifies him. And he calls him into service. So what we're going to do for three weeks on Sunday morning, we won't be in Acts. Wait till the 27th, we'll be headlong back in Acts. But for three Sundays in a row, we're going to preach Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. Today, we will just deal with Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. And we're going to exalt the King of glory for his holiness. Next week, we're going to receive the forgiveness and purification that we need from the King of glory And then in verses 8 through 13, which are extremely difficult for modern Americans to grasp, we're going to deal with the commission and or the service. The call from the King of glory to enter into his service. I think that's a great way to start 2019. Don't you? Uh, To think about the holiness of the Lord. So the King of glory is the title of the sermon. And in the first four verses, we're going to be presented... With a, with a vision of divine holiness unlike any other passage found anywhere in the Bible. And Isaiah begins this section. David read it for us, so we read it collectively uh, as a congregation. He begins his writing in the scripture by addressing the time of the vision. In the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. So he's giving us the time frame of the vision. 
Now, to me, it's interesting that he doesn't begin with the date of the beginning of a king's reign, nor does he begin with the duration or in the middle of the king's reign. He does something unique. He actually deals with the vision in regard to the death of a certain king, and that's important. Why does Isaiah associate in his mind the giving of the vision with the death of Uzziah? Again, he would have reigned up until around 740 B.C. We actually have a snapshot of Uzziah's reign found, given to us by the chronicler in 2 Chronicles. Make your way there if you would. I don't hear too many pages. Make your way there with your phone, if you will. <laughs> right? You don't hear the scriptures turning pages too much anymore. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. The chronicler is going to give us an understanding of Uzziah's reign. 2 Chronicles 26. I'll skip around a little bit because it could get long. 26.1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to, to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Verse 4. And he did right what was he and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, y'all see something here? As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now drop down, if you would, to verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will... And it will bring you no honor from the Lord your God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Verse 21, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house and lineage of Israel. Wow. That's the story of Uzziah. Got a snapshot of it. Some people speculate that Isaiah was actually a nephew of Uzziah. And I have no idea if that's the case. Some scholars speculate. It's kind of risky business for 80 of these priests along with Azariah to confront a king who had reigned for 52 years. Kind of risky business. But they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and they confronted the king. And the Bible tells us that Uzziah remains a leper. Isn't it interesting that as he was faithful to the Lord and sought the Lord, God prospered him and he was strong. But when he turned away from the Lord and was unfaithful, that was not the case at all. So here's a king who reigned 52 years. 
When you have a king that brings that kind of prosperity and strength and wealth to a nation, he certainly endures his heart to the people, correct? We know that. That's 52 years. He, however, comes to a tragic end like many of the kings listed in the Bible. So often we see... And this king served, and he didn't know the ways of the Lord, nor did he walk in the ways of the Lord, and he died. For some of the kings, there is a lengthy epitaph of the fact that they did serve the Lord, but for very few, that's the case. Do you believe that God is sovereign over history? Do you really believe that? Are you just kind of tipping your hat? Or do you really believe that God is sovereign over all of history? The events of history themselves are also not only a declaration from God, but oftentimes history itself is a declaration about God. Y'all believe that? That is surely the case when it comes to Uzziah being the king of Israel. In a real sense, Uzziah doesn't just represent himself. He actually represents an entire nation that had singularly, as a nation, walked away from the Lord. Under the hand of the Lord, while they sought the Lord, what do we know about the Israelites? God blessed them. And they were a strong people, and they were prosperous. But as you see in the Old Testament, time and time again, what with that might and prosperity comes up this ugly, awful sin of pride. And pride cannot reside in the heart of the servant of the Lord. So God does to Uzziah. What God also at times does to the nations. That may be a lesson for the United States of America, by the way. There's something else we learn about the Lord God surrounding the death of Uzziah. I think this is why Uzziah, I think this is why Isaiah makes the connection with a death of a certain king. There's a reason for that. And here's the deal. Kings, even those who reign 52 years, come and go. Yet there is a king, ladies and gentlemen, who is seated on a throne, who has reigned from eternity past, and will reign for all eternity future. And that's the king that we serve. And what a lesson it is for us in 2019 when you put maybe all of your faith and stock in certain things to understand that you should put your faith and confidence in one king who reigns upon a throne. When we look at the media, when we look at TV, when we look at the surroundings, and look at the United States of America, it's so easy for us just to go into a shell and think, oh my goodness, what is going to happen to our world? I've got news for you. God has it all under control. He does, folks. He can cause the hearts of a king to move like a river. He, he can accomplish whatever his sovereign decrees want him, or whatever he decrees, it will Take place. So Isaiah had a vision of a throne that can never end, with someone seated on it whose glory fills the entire earth. What an awesome understanding of who God is. And so it is this morning, just one point. Can you handle that? It's good that a preacher preaches and has at least one point. And we're going to have that one today. One next week and one the next week. Therefore, you will know exactly what the preacher is saying. First, or the scriptures more importantly, we exalt the king of glory for his holiness. And notice how it starts. I saw the Lord. Now, does that bother you that Isaiah said, I saw the Lord? If you're a student of the word, it should at least make you, your ears perk up a little bit. Now, what does it mean for Isaiah 
to see the Lord. Because there are a couple of uh, verses of Scripture that remind us distinctively that no one has ever seen God. Period. We find this in John 1.18. It reminds us that God is invisible and no one has seen Him at any time. And then you have 1 Timothy 6.16 that says our God dwells in unapproachable light. And no man has seen God at any time. Yes, go ahead and write in parentheses, even Benny Hinn, (laughs) even Kenneth Copeland. These guys have not seen the Lord, period, because the Bible says they have not seen the Lord. Now, I think it's immaterial for us to argue, is this a vision or did he somehow get transported into heaven? I think that's kind of immaterial. I think what we do understand and know for sure that what he saw was a fact. What he saw in the vision and or uh, if he was transported up into heaven and he actually saw it, saw what he sees, is still fact. And notice what the text says. I saw the Lord. What is the Hebrew word? It's important. It's Adonaiah. It's extremely important here. In Hebrew it means the one who has sovereign authority. He has absolute lordship. We may say it describes more of God's kingliness. Thus, we call this, the sermon title, the king of glory. Adonijah stresses more the kingliness of the Lord. His absolute power and authority. In other words, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the king of kings, the monarch of monarchs, on his throne. That's what's going on here. The essence, yes, of God cannot be seen. Did you hear it? Though the eye of sinful man, his glory cannot see. Did y'all sing that this morning? By the way, I noticed that some of you were singing like this. I looked over here and looked over here and everybody was just like, man, long weekend, right? I mean, if you burn it long on Saturday night, don't expect to come in here on Sunday morning and be able to engage the Lord. It's quiet in here. There is something called preparation for worship. And here we see uh, the eye of sinful man cannot behold him. However, God can and does manifest himself visibly. Notice the terminology, manifest. There are two words that we often use. One is theophany. It's, It's a God manifestation that we see throughout the scripture. But I think it can more accurately be called in just about every occasion, a Christophany. A manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ before He came down to Bethlehem. I think we could probably say that with clarity. The passage says, we're just going right along, He is sitting on a throne. Now this speaks of the sovereign rule of God. The word throne is used 40 times in the book of Revelation. How many of y'all knew that? 40 times. What does that tell you about the book of Revelation? The the throne is central to an understanding of the book. By the way, the book of Revelation is essentially on the sovereignty of God over evil. Our God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over all things. So the subtle contrast is that no one is sitting on Uzziah's throne... But Adonijah, the monarch of monarchs, the king of kings, God Almighty, is sitting on his throne. That's good news for 2019. 
He is lofty and exalted is the next phrase. Isaiah will use this expression two other times. Let me show you uh, at least one of them. I'll give you the reference to the other one. You can look it up. But Isaiah 52, 13. This is interesting because this usage of it is discussing the suffering servant who would come. And who is the suffering servant? It's Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Same phrase that Isaiah uses. And I need to show you 57 because it's so good. 57, 15. Here it is again, the same phrase. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isn't that great? Whose name is holy. So high and lifted up, used three times in the book of Isaiah, is regal language. And the Bible says to explain what he means by high and lifted up, Isaiah says to us, the train of his robe fills the temple. Be careful there in terminology because really it's, it's a participle of dynamic expression. Really it's saying this, the train of the robe is filling the temple continually forever. Amazing. To grasp that into your mind. The length of a train of a king's robe in the ancient world was a direct, direct reflection of the degree of majesty and glory that the king had. So, for instance, if you had a king with a lot of power and a lot of longevity like Uzziah who reigned for 52 years, <clears throat> he may possess a pretty long train. Meaning he had a robe and stitched to it would be longer lengths of his robe. And so Uzziah would have possessed a long train. Other kings may sport this kind of coat, right? Boy, I just had a thought. I wonder how long the train of the robe would be for some of our presidents we've had. I don't think it would cover the backside, do y'all? For the majority of the ever how many we've had. But here's this king, this is awesome and dynamic. It doesn't say it just filled the temple, but the train of his robe is filling the temple. The king's glory is unending. The train of his robe is in the process of filling with continuity for eternity the place that Isaiah saw. Continually increases. Now, here's an interesting tidbit of information. The word temple may not be temple. That's right. Because the translation could be one of two things. It could be temple or it could be palace. It can, it can literally stand for either one. So we have to ask ourselves which one is it. I don't think it really matters. However, if Isaiah was in a palace, it's possible that he came into that palace to mourn Uzziah's death before an empty throne. And God shows him someone seated on the throne. Right? It's highly possible. Why? Because Isaiah was not a priest. Would he have even been bought, brought into a temple area courtroom to see this? I don't know. It's speculation. But the fact of the matter is, he shows him that the throne that really matters is always occupied. Even after the death of Uzziah. Now the Bible makes a point to tell us that these words, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
Now, I hate to break your hearts, but seraphim is not an angelic title. It's not. Um, it's okay if you want to believe that, but there's no definitive article in front of seraphim. It's actually burning ones. Uh, without a definitive article, it's hard to argue this is a category. What you are seeing, though, is a description. You're seeing a description of what Isaiah saw, and he saw these burning ones. These burning ones were hovering above the throne. They have wings. With two, they cover their face. Okay, at this point, use some sanctified imagination. Are you ready? Here are these seraphim. And obviously, there's some type of angelic being from our perspective. That's the only way we'd be able to rationalize this. And with some kind of holiness about them. I don't think we would be able to behold even those seraphim. I don't really think we... Kind of like when the angel appeared to give Mary the news or Joseph. or I don't think we would... I think we would be trauma stricken if we, if we saw an angel. I think that would be the case. So here are these seraphim, these burning ones. And they hover over the throne of Adonai and they cover their faces. The only explanation for why they would cover their faces... Is because of the absolute blazing holiness of the one who is seated on the throne. Amen. Is there any other way to see this? They are staring down at the Lord. Almost like staring into the very sun. Have you ever done this? And as you stare, you just, you just cannot behold it. And that's what's happening in this verse. They have to cover their faces. Now take in consideration, here are angels who don't know any... They don't have a spot of sin in them. Created by the Lord. And yet they hover over the Lord God Almighty and they have to cover their faces in humility because of the greatness and grandeur and in particular the holiness of God. They also cover their feet, the Bible says. In all likelihood, this is expressing again the humility they have before the Lord. It, what, when you think about the foot or feet, I know Chris Dixon wigs out about that. He won't even wash his own wife's feet. He's, man, I'm telling you what. I mean, he just... If I, showed, if I showed Chris my feet, I guarantee you, son, he would never quote how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. <laughs> I promise you that. But what do you know about feet? Well, it identifies creatureliness. That's what it does. It speaks of the fact that we're connected to the ground, don't ever forget that. You were made from dust. And here's the deal. Moses, when the Lord consumed the burning bush without it being consumed, right? Came down to it. What did he say to Moses? Take off your sandals. For you're standing on holy ground. So the foot of man is what is in constant contact with creation. In a sense, it's what connects man to creation. So the angels have no sin but an act of humility before the Holy One, they cover their body that most vividly, that part of the body which most vividly describes their creatureliness. These are holy angels. Get this now. They're not fallen angels. There's not a spot of sin in them, but they must cover their faces and they must cover their feet before the blazing holiness of the One who is seated upon the throne. And the Bible says with two they flew. Some take this to mean that they're ready at a beckoning moment to serve the Lord. That's possibly true, but I just think it adds to the glory and grandeur of the Lord that they're just hovering. Blazing holiness of the Lord, they're hovering above Him, and they're singing a song. 
perhaps with seraphic antiphonal repetition. But they're singing a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the host of the armies of heaven. That's the translation. Uh. The passage leads us to believe it's a song they sing without ceasing. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, where I started, Revelation 4, 1 and 2, if you move down to verse 8, the Bible says that they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and is, and is to come. And the Bible adds, they do it night and day. So they're doing it without ceasing. They sing in Hebrew, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Is there anything to the trebling of holy? Is there, any, is, is there an importance to the angel singing it three times? Holy, holy, holy. They didn't even have a Trinity hymn book like we have. Right? They didn't have... The song, Holy, 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 that you just listened to. Do you know, in Hebrew, there are no adjectives. So, if you're going to express a Hebrew word, you do it with a multiplicity of times that you use it. It's called repetition. So, let's get an example of that. Genesis chapter 14, verse 10, the three kings that Abraham pursues, the Bible says they get stuck in pit, pit. Pithy pits, right? Well, it would really mean they get stuck in sticky, sticky, a sticky, sticky place, right? And that's the literal Hebrew. It says pit, pit. That's what happens to them. In Isaiah 26, 3, the Bible says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Guess what the real literal rendering in Hebrew is? You keep them in, perf- you keep them in peace, peace. So how do you translate peace, peace? Perfect peace. There's another example, many more examples, but in 2 Kings, it talks about Solomon's perfect or pure gold. In the Hebrew, it says gold, gold, which would mean what? Pure gold. So in the Hebrew way of thinking, they piled up words in order to express and emphasize that word. Jesus did this, correct? Truly, truly, I say to you. Yet notice, this is not one repetition. This is three. Holy, holy, holy. One commentator says this, it bears repeating. Our God's holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. And that's exactly what that's called in Hebrew. A superlative. And it has to be invented In order for us to think about holiness. Why? It's not enough just to say God is holy. It's not enough just to say He's holy, holy. we got to say it three times. He's holy, holy, holy. I can tell you now, that is the most important thing you could ever enter 2019 with on your mind. That God is holy. His holiness is such a part of His being that... The Hebrew must take something to the third degree in order to express it to us. A superlative of holiness is what it is. Now, the early church fathers took holy, holy, holy to identify the Trinity. And people who are triune people like us, 
uh, we would say, yeah, I can see that. But the major emphasis is the fact that it is emphasizing the holiness of God. The undeniable truth is that these angels are awestruck at the holiness of God. Get, get the picture now. Sanctified imagination. These aren't humans singing this. These are angels. Before the throne of God, singing this. Now here's the question for this morning. What is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? What does that word kadosh mean? Well, it has at least two aspects. We're going to do those two aspects and we're going to be done. Are you ready? First, it has the aspect of transcendence. When we say the word holy, what does it mean to say God is holy, holy, holy? What does it mean to say that He dwells in unapproachable light and and that He is holy? Or the word holiness. So in and of itself, the word means separate. It deals with the transcendency of our God. So when you apply separateness to God, or transcendence to God, you know what that means? He is other than us. He is other than us. The first thing about holiness means this. God is not like you and me. Period. That is the major definition of holy. So the gap between us and God is of infinite proportions. In Psalm 50, God chastises His people because they thought that God was altogether just like they were as mankind. And God says, I will drag you into court and I will prove to you right before your face that I am not like you. So we learn that in Psalm 50. Even though man is the image bearer of God. Let me just tell you, the difference between Adam and Eve was of infinite proportions even before the fall. Now, and we're, we're image bearers, although the, that, bear, that bearing of the image of God is defaced in comparison to how it looked when Adam and Eve were created in the garden. But folks, I want you to understand something. We need to remind ourselves of something. Because in our culture, we have dumbed our God down so bad, and even His gospel to us, that we want everything in human terminology. We want to try to wrap our minds around an infinite God that you will never figure out. And the fact of the matter is, it's impossible to do that. God has given us as image bearers certain communicable attributes. Those are attributes that God passed on to us that a dog and a cat and nothing else in uh, in the world has. You understand that mankind was the height of God's creation. Right? Right? You, were given, you, you bear the image of God, which is a multi, multifaceted understanding of what that means. Yes, most importantly, that you can have a relationship with Him. But there are other things that God passes along to us because we are His image bearers. For instance, love. You have the capacity to love. That's called a communicable attribute that God passes on. However, do you understand that there's a whole list of attributes that are incommunicable? That He, will, he has not passed on to us. Y'all know that. This means yes, this means no. Talk to me. There's a whole list of them that belong to God and only God. Period. We should spend time meditating on how infinitely far we are from God and how little we really know God. Our assumption in our culture with the over-familiarity with God is a major problem in modern evangelicalism. Major Major problem. People don't think about, nor do they study, nor do they read about the holiness of God. 
Nor do they think about how holy God is. A.W. Tozer did. (laughs) And he points out well for us in the book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to this. We must not think of God as the highest in ascending order of beings. In other words, he says, starting with the single cell, going up from there to the fish, and then to the bird, then to the animal, then to man, then to the angel, then to the cherub, and then to God. He he adds, God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite. While the gulf that separates the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. And it is. If God is holy other than us, we've only scratched the surface of his, of his essence. True? Eternity will not even for you be able to expound the holiness and grandeur of the God that we have. Eternity will not allow you to expound. The God that we have. Can you grasp that? The God who created this immense and vast universe is the God who also condescended from heaven. Came down in the person of Jesus Christ to be eminently involved with you. Though he is so far we can never figure him out. He came down, did he not? But even in that, even in the Son of God coming down, there's still a part of the knowledge of God that you will never know. There's a part of Him that you will never know. Why? Because He is God and we're not. I can promise you of that. And it ought to blow our minds every time you bow your head and say, Father, should it not blow your mind that you can actually speak to Him because of Jesus and call Him your Father? Now when you come in for worship, y'all not sit there like a stump on a log. I mean, you're dealing with the king of the universe that wasn't satisfied with just all of his glory in heaven, which is, well, he could have been. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Get this through your mind. He did not need you. He is absolutely self-sufficient. What's that mean? He doesn't depend on anybody or anything for him. And yet, he would see fit to make Adam. He didn't have to make Adam. Why did he make Adam? Well, God was lonely. Hogwash. He wasn't lonely. He created Adam because he knew ultimately that he would save mankind and that mankind would bring him glory. That's why he did it. So here it is, folks. When we can call him our Father, what an amazing understanding of who our God is. That he is eminently involved with us. It should blow our minds. There's another aspect of the holiness, not just a separate transcendent nature, but this is the one you're most familiar with, and that's the fact that God is separate from sin, separate from evil, and separate from impurity. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure even to look upon sin. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no Darkness at all. In Greek language, it's not like English. And this is a double negative in the Greek. There is absolutely no, not any darkness in God. That's how you would translate the word no, N-O. It's not like English, is it? If we do that kind of thing, it's a double negative and we get a double zero on our paper. But that's not true in, in Greek. 
because he's trying his best to use a word that expresses, get this folks, there is absolutely no, not any darkness in God. That means he is absolutely pure. It is this attribute of God that we sinners most need to understand. And that absolute attribute ought to transform your life. Well, I struggled with this this week. Knowing that I was preaching this. And the spotlight would be right here. And it's on you too if you're a believer. Are you listening? How you're living your life. In light of the fact that your God is absolutely holy. And in Him is no darkness at all. Young people, that'll make a difference. Before you go out with your boyfriend and make a huge mistake for life. It'll make a difference when God is holy. And in Him is no darkness at all all. That ought to grip your heart, folks. That you're living your life out in front of a holy God. Thought life, actions, everything about you as a believer. You say, well, I don't know about that. Oh, did you read 1 Peter? The Bible says, be you holy, even as your Father in heaven is holy. Now, that's a different sermon. And another sermon I'd have to unpack for you. But that's what the Word of God says. It's the attribute, the holiness of God, that we sinners most need to understand. And that attribute should transform your life every day. That God is absolutely holy. You know, there is a distinction made between glory by theologians. That's how it ends, doesn't it? The whole earth is full. Again, uh, Adjective of dynamic, uh, a participle of dynamic expression. The whole earth is being filled continually with the glory of God. Just like, just like the train of His robe. Now, there are, there's a sense where God's glory at this point is a declared glory. So God has His essential glory. And I would say that is the perfection of all of God's attributes. That's the best definition of glory. The the perfection of all of God's attributes that belong only to Him. In other words, you have essential glory that God has, but He's also declared His glory. Has He not? When the angels say the whole earth is full of His glory, what they are saying is that throughout the entire earth and the created order that God has made, there is a reflection of our God and His attributes in what He created. Right? Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says that creation reveals the existence and the attributes of God. But in verse 25, sadly, the people exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forevermore, the Bible says. So the world is already filled with the glory of God right now. But the problem is we've become idolaters. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 predicts that someday the earth will be filled with the knowledge of His glory as water covers the sea. One of these days, when we believers walk around with redeemed and resurrected bodies in a perfect universe, radiant only with the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that's going to happen in the future. Nothing's going to keep you from seeing the glory of God. Nothing. That's coming. I didn't say you'll have all knowledge like God. I said nothing will keep you from seeing His glory. 
Right now, we look through a, a glass dimly. One of these days, we're going to see him face to face. Did y'all know that God is not satisfied with the way his glory fills the earth right now? God is going to change this. Can I show you a little story? Numbers, chapter 14. Listen to this little story. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and dis disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. God just gets ticked. He says, I'm telling you what, Moses, I'm about to wipe every single one of them out, and I'm going to start all over with you. That doesn't seem fair. And especially about you living in the United States of America, you think everybody's got to be fair. I got news for you, God's not fair. He's just. He's not fair. He's God. He's just. Moses said to the Lord, God, if he, this is beautiful, is it not? The Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the earth. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of his people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations will have heard your fame and will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to them. In other words, Moses pleads. He says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. What does God do? He forgives them. But listen to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Listen to this, folks. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall... And as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God says, as sure as I live, I'm going to fill this entire world with my glory. You know what you call that, folks? A promise. Have you ever looked at God's track record? There's not a single time He doesn't come through. And folks, He's going to fill this entire world with His glory. Now, there are some results that took place. The Bible says that the very threshold of the temple began to shake. Did y'all know that when God's holiness is captivating to us, or in this particular picture, when they're singing, holy, 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 even inanimate objects are moved. Things that weigh a lot began to tremble and move at the angels singing, and because of the holiness of God, the majesty of His holiness even moves inanimate objects. As a matter of fact, if you've ever read through the Psalms, you'll see that one says that in His presence, the mountains melt like wax. Isn't that amazing? Habakkuk 3 shows us that inanimate creation trembles in the presence of the Almighty. And then the Bible says another result is that smoke fills the temple or the palace. So again, grammatical structure... The train is filling the temple. The temple is also filling without stop, without end, with smoke. Do you know that fire and smoke proclaim the terror of God? 
Why is that? Well, there's a confrontation always with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We've forgotten that in the United States of America. We literally think we can pet our God. We literally think He's like us. But I'm telling you, folks, there's a vast gulf between our God and us. And the fact of the matter is, any time His holiness confronts man's sin, you're going to have smoke. You're going to have burning. You're going to have fire. Do you remember Mount Sinai? If you even touch the hem of the mountain, you died. Because God came down. So here in this text of Scripture, you've got sinful creation coming into contact with a holy God. And again, we've forgotten that our God is holy. And you can't treat Him lightly, folks. There ought to be a sobriety and a seriousness when we approach the Lord. Yes, it's mixed with great joy because our entrance is because of Jesus. Right? It's mixed with great joy, but here's the deal, folks. God is holy. And here's what I want you to take into the new year. The only attribute that is revealed in the Scripture in treble is holiness. Did y'all know that? This attribute is given like no other attribute in the entire Bible. This is why there ought to be seriousness in the way we worship. You ought to ask God in 2019, God help me be serious when I worship. How about our prayer time? Oh boy, I need it. Preacher, you pray all the time. Yeah, I do, but I don't pray enough. And you don't either. A seriousness about our praying. How about a seriousness about our giving? And about our service to this king who is seated upon the throne. This chapter calls us to heavenly worship of the glorious Christ. And I really hadn't told you who's seated on the throne, have I? But I'm going to. <clears throat> there's, a little, there's a little bit of a secret to that. You might find it in John chapter 12 if you'll read it. But the fact of the matter is, we know here that our heavenly worship to Christ should match the seraphim in their awe-filled cries before Jesus, saying, holy, holy, holy. Wouldn't it be awesome if our worship to Him matched the seraphim in the next year? Absolutely. I would encourage every, every, I would encourage everyone in attendance... To look at your heart. Look at your actions. See if indeed you are treating God as holy. By the way, how are you doing with this holiness thing? Is it working out pretty well for you? Is it? How are you doing with the holiness thing? You say, well, I'm on my way to heaven. I got saved and I can sin all I want to sin and I'm going to make it into heaven. Don't fool yourself. That will be the biggest mistake you've ever made. One day I'll preach through Hebrews, and it'll become very clear that if you don't live the life, you probably didn't have it to begin with. You better, you better wake up, folks, and, and understand that you didn't just get a fire insurance policy to escape hell. When you got saved, God transformed your life, and He put His nature in you, and His nature is holy. Right? There ought to be a desire in your heart and life. And I know we all sin. We know that. But the fact of the matter is, you ought to have a greater appreciation for the fact that you should not willfully want to sin in light of this text. And furthermore, in 1 John, it says the very same thing about sin. So folks, let's go into 2019 with this kind of understanding of the holiness of God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And God, forgive me.
for not focusing upon who you are. Lord, especially this particular attribute. God, help us. Help me. Help our church family. Lord, I think we'd be a whole lot better church family if we did focus on your holiness. And this is a good church. And a good church family. But God, we need a divine... We need to exalt the holiness of God that the King of glory has. You are holy, holy, holy. Father... Next week we're going to see that Isaiah had to be forgiven of his sin before he could enter service. Hot coals taken from the altar purified him. Lord, Jesus did that for us. If there's someone here under the sound of my voice that's lost, Lord Jesus, you're the only answer to them. You're the only mediator between this God and man. Jesus Christ the righteous. See, Father, we could never have a righteousness that would bring us to heaven. But your Son is righteous. And He came down from heaven so that He would die for us and our sin. Pay that penalty so that He would give us a righteousness so that we could go to heaven. God, help an individual today repent of sin and turn to you and trust Jesus only for salvation. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus only for salvation. And for Christians, God, help every one of us. Renew us, Father. Revive our hearts and spirits. Lord, our greatest desire, men and women, should be to be a holy man or a holy woman before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.